So last week, if you're here, Fumi Ojitayo kicked off our Lenten series in the book of Lamentations, and he did a wonderful job preaching through chapter one. And don't worry, you're going to get Fumi back next week. Um, but this week, I'm going to give him a break and cover chapter two for him. And this week, we're going to talk about anger. So I want to start off by telling you about some of my anger. Um, on the whole, the suffering of my life has been small. I listen to the stories that you guys share with me, and I read stories from people all around the world, and I realize that truly horrible things happen all the time, every day, and that I myself have been spared most of them. So I share this with humility. Um, but one of the most painful seasons of my own life was the time surrounding the birth of my firstborn son, Benjamin, nearly 14 years ago. And it wasn't because I didn't want children. <laughs> I wanted children very much. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't love my son. I do love him, and I'm proud of him. But it was because Benjamin was born very sick, seven weeks premature, with problems eating, terrible acid reflux, and neurological problems, including seizures. So in the first few months of his life, his life seemed so fragile that Sarah and I went to bed every night praying that when we woke up in the morning, he would still be alive. So you can imagine we lived those days under this constant shadow of anxiety. We were fairly isolated. We were new in town and we didn't have any close friends yet. And we were barely sleeping because Benjamin's stomach pain kept him up for most of the night. I was working full time for an engineering firm and I was only 24 years old. And this was the first truly difficult challenge of my life. And I dealt with it by pressing through stubbornly. <laughs> Through long anxious days and short anxious nights, gradually wearing thinner and thinner and growing more and more exhausted until about three months in, I just snapped and I lost it with God. I raged at him. I swore, I shouted, I threw things. I took the Death Star cannon of my fury and I aimed it at the heart of the father and I let him have full blast which of course did him no harm at all. Um, but it did open up my heart to one of the most honest and genuine prayers of my life, saying to the Father, this is not right. We cannot be expected to live this way. We cannot do this for one more day. You must help us. <laughs> Said it just like that. And that night, uh, Benjamin slept for 12 hours straight. And he slept every night after that. Um, and it didn't stop being a very hard year, but Sarah and I were able to go on. And we went on very humbled. We were both very deeply humbled that year. Um, and we both say that we wouldn't want to go back to being the people that we were before we had that experience. So our suffering brought me to the point of being angry with God. And I think I might go as far as to say that our suffering, especially when it's deep and prolonged suffering, often makes us angry with God. And it has prompted some people to abandon their faith altogether. So I would say that anger with God is completely normal. But in Lamentations 2, we find maybe a more faithful way to suffer. Because this song of lament recognizes some important things. First, that God himself is angry too. Second, that he wants us to acknowledge our losses to him. 
so that third we can return to him in prayer so if you haven't already opened your bibles please turn now to lamentations chapter 2 it's on page 686 of the church bibles lamentations chapter 2 and we begin with the discovery that god is angry too so lamentations 2 is a second song of lament we read the whole thing it's long we read the whole thing today because it is one beautifully constructed poem it has as much care and order in the language as any shakespearean sonnet and just like chapter one it's another acrostic poem it has 22 verses for the 22 letters of the hebrew alphabet and each verse begins with the next letter so sometimes poets will use the form of their poetry to echo the content right so they might write very fast and rhythmic poetry for fast action or they might write very beautiful poetry to describe a beautiful lover. But in this case, it's ironic because the form and the content are complete opposites. This is well-organized, polished, beautiful poetry that describes chaos, terror, noise, and slaughter. And it begins in verses one through five by talking about God's anger. These first five verses all begin with God, God is the subject, and we see very clearly that God is angry. So verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger. End of verse 4, he has poured out his fury like fire. And in verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. You hear that over and over God's anger in these first verses is unmistakable. And equally unmistakable is the understanding that Israel's destruction was the direct result of God's anger. God himself did this. So it was the Babylonian army that actually did all of the terrible things, but they are not held ultimately responsible in this chapter. Jeremiah recognizes that this was God's work and the heart of the problem was God's anger. So I want to say at this point that I don't think we should conclude from this chapter that all our suffering is the result of God's anger. Some people have drawn that conclusion, and when they suffer, they say, well, it must mean that God is angry with me. But that isn't necessarily true, and it's not biblical. The whole book of Job in the Old Testament was written to disabuse us of that very idea because Job suffered terribly even though he was a righteous man. That's the whole point of the book. Uh, the life of Paul in the New Testament also proves it completely wrong because Paul clearly suffered all through his ministry, but he knew all along that God's anger with him had been fully dealt with on the cross of Jesus. So I'm not saying that all of our suffering is the result of God's anger, but we must see in this chapter that the fall of Israel to Babylon in 586 BC was the direct consequence of God's anger with his people Israel. It was all about his personal relationship with his people. And the, text of, uh, the language of the text demonstrates that. So we see in verse 1 that it calls Israel the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion. So they have a family relationship with God. Later in the same verse, it remembers that Jerusalem was God's footstool. And then in verse 3, it says that God has withdrawn from them his right hand, which recalls the former days when God went into battle for his people. And it's something he's done for no other nation, is to fight on their behalf. So all of this is deeply covenantal language. 
God is angry with his own people. And precisely because they are his people, he's angry in a way that he's not with any other nation. Because he loves them. Because of his intimate relationship with them. So this is not a blanket statement about all the suffering we see today. But it does remind us that God is righteous and God is loving. And his anger at his people actually proves both of those things. So I want to imagine this, this scenario. Imagine that a teenager comes home and says to her dad, Dad, I stole a car today. And her dad says, way to go, honey. Was it a nice car? That father clearly has no moral standards, right? He might love her, but he's not good. What if instead he said to her, well, that was evil. I hope the police catch up with you. That father might have a moral standard, but he clearly has no love for his daughter. So if that father's good, and if he's loving, how is he going to respond? There's only really one way that father can respond, isn't there? And that's anger. Because anger says, I care about you. I will not let you destroy yourself. And I believe that you can do better. Anger is the emotion of a parent who has not given up. And God is pouring out his anger on Israel here, not because he had given up on his daughter, but precisely because he hadn't. It wasn't ultimately destructive. It was disciplinary. And Jeremiah goes on in this section. Uh, he says three times in verses 4 and 5 that God has been to his people like an enemy or like a foe. You see that in the text. But he cannot go as far as to say that God has become Israel's enemy because he knows that, in fact, God is still their father and their friend. Even as severe as this mercy is, it is still a mercy. God is yet protecting them from something worse, from continuing to live in idolatry and sin and thereby suffering for all eternity. And for us too, we know that God is also our good father and our friend who has not given up on us. So Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to accept hardship as discipline. It says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So that's the first thing to see here, that God is angry too. And that shows his abiding covenant love for his people. And that's a good starting point. But as we move on in Lamentations 2, we find a lot more help in dealing with our own anger at the terrible tragedies in our lives. So the second lesson is that we need to acknowledge our losses to God. So Jeremiah is modeling for us here good lamenting in this chapter. And the next thing he does is to lay out all of the losses Speak them out. Make a list. Hide nothing. Hold nothing back. You have to acknowledge the pain if it's ever going to be healed. So Jeremiah does this on two levels. First on the high government level in verses 6 through 10, and then on the street level in verses 11 through 14. And the focus is on Jerusalem, the center of Israel's worship and the seat of their government. So in, verses, in verse 6, both the king and the priest are spurned. Then in verse 7, both palace and temple are destroyed. And in verses 8 and 9, the destruction spreads to the ramparts and walls and gates and bars. So it's describing a city leveled, a government overthrown, a religion extinguished, and a whole culture erased. Verse 9 laments that the law is no more. 
In verse 6, mourns the end of Sabbath days and festivals. Think about the scale of this national tragedy. The closest that we have ever come to this in America was probably 9-11, right? When two iconic buildings of our greatest city crumbled to dust, thousands of lives were lost, a city was terrorized, and a nation traumatized while our enemies gloated. And that day was terrible enough. But imagine if instead of five planes, it was 5,000. And instead of one city in ruins, it was all of them. Our president and government murdered, our constitution burned, the White House rubble, and Capitol Hill a smoldering ruin, our currency worthless, and our flag meaningless. That is the disaster that came upon Israel. And Jeremiah lists it out line by line. And of course, it wasn't just a problem at the top, at the level of government. In verses 11 through 14, he turns his attention to the ordinary people, the women and children in their ordinary lives. And he says of them, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And Jeremiah pictures himself walking among these starving and wounded people, hunting around for something, anything that he can say to give them even a little bit of comfort. But he comes up completely dry and says in verse 13, What can I say for you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea, and who can heal you? And I think even across the gulf of time, we can feel the terrible sting of grief in those words. When you look to your people, the ones you love, to offer them any comfort or help, and you find nothing. And as Jeremiah lists out the details of the devastation, one feature that makes it even more bitter in this chapter is his ironic use of language. So over and over again, he uses positive words to describe this horrible situation. So I'm going to show you several examples of this. Um, so at the end of verse 5, if you look carefully, it says that God has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, uh, mourning and lamentation. Multiplied, right? That word multiply is the word of blessing. That's the Genesis word. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the Abraham covenant word. I will surely multiply your offspring. It's a good word, but it's being used here as a word of curse because God is multiplying sorrow. Then in verse 6, it says God has laid waste his booth like a garden. Why didn't he say like a desert, right? It should be a desert, but he writes a garden. A garden is good. Everywhere else in scripture, a garden is a beautiful paradise, like the Garden of Eden that God made. But here and here alone, it is a bitter word because it signals the absence of the temple. Again in verse 6, the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. Forget the Sabbath! Of all the things Israel was called most in the Lord to remember, it was the festivals and the Sabbath day. It's the only of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. And here the Lord has made them forget. What bitterness to forget the Sabbath. In verse 7, the invaders raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. So he, Jeremiah hears the victory cries of the invaders and he says, I know what that sounds like. That sounds like the Passover. That sounds like when we were here in the temple crying out with joy to the Lord. But this cry is now ruining 
uh, our chance of ever crying out like that again. In verse 8, it says that God stretched out a measuring line in order to destroy Jerusalem's walls. What kind of builder <laughs> destroys a building with a measuring line? Nobody uses a measuring line to destroy. They use it to build. It's the tool of the architect and the builder. But it's a bit of irony to have this tool used in the careful planning of destruction. And then in verse 12, Jeremiah watches the infants as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. They are dying in the place that gave them life. The place that's associated with care and comfort and nourishment is dry and barren and has become their deathbed. And the ironies of these sweet words and these sweet images turned bitter make the grief all the more overwhelming. And don't we feel too that our losses are most poignant at the times that should have been happy? When we lose a family member, it's most painful on their birthday, isn't it? Or at Christmas, the times that used to feel good and happy, those times come back again and again as a mockery. And the sum of all that sorrow can feel too huge to name. But what we see in this chapter is that the sorrow must be spoken. It cannot be kept hidden away inside us. And Jeremiah, by, by taking this time and effort to craft this poem of lament, has really served the people of Israel. He's laid down a monument stone and said, this happened, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to sing about it, and we're going to have a beautiful poem that describes it perfectly. And he's really served his people by putting their common grief into words. Um, toward the end of 2020, I just felt a similar, like, burning need inside me to just list out before the Lord all the things that COVID had taken away from me. Uh, and it started with the really small things like hugs and parties and the Tokyo Olympics. And uh, then it went all the way through to much more serious things like the lives and the marriages and the mental health of my dear friends. And I wrote it down not nearly as beautifully as Jeremiah. I'm not going to read you any of the rubbish I wrote. Um, but my list, it filled up a whole page. And I laid it out before the Lord and said, I have lost all of this, and I am sad about this. And I do commend that exercise to you as a way to practice holy lament and to move yourself into a place of readiness to receive the Lord's healing. Write a poem, write a song, find the words that you need to tell it. Because that prepares us for the third movement in chapter 2, which is to return to God in prayer. When we look at the end of this uh, song, we see from verses 15 through 22, there are two different responses to the calamity. First, the enemies, and they gloat, and then the people of Israel, and they pray. And those are clearly set side by side as the opposite responses. The gloating of the enemies is clearly wrong, and the prayer of the people is what should be done. So in verse 15, the enemies rejoice at the downfall of the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. And who rejoices at the downfall of a perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? That is something God has done and something God has made. And the desecration of that good thing could never be anything other than a tragedy. Who would rejoice as that falls? Then in verse 16, the enemies actually take credit for God's own work because they say, we have swallowed her. When the truth is from verse 2 that the Lord has swallowed her. Exactly the same verb. 
And verse 17 reiterates that the Lord has done what he purposed. So the enemies are completely wrong. They will not get away with that kind of blasphemy. And we read at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 18 that Babylon gets punished for this violence against God's people and for this gloating. So the very same thing that Babylon did to Israel, God ends up doing back to Babylon at the end of the story, destroying utterly in a day and turning the city to smoldering rubble, leaving behind nothing but weeping and mourning while the people of Israel sing for joy. And this future prophecy, prophecy obviously doesn't refer to the real Babylon, which is long gone, uh, but also to every idolatrous city that sets itself up against God and his people. They will get their comeuppance in the end. So the first response of gloating is the wrong one. But at the end of the chapter, there's a much better response. The people of God humble themselves and they pray. So verse 19 calls the people to arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Now, isn't it the case with us that when we suffer greatly, our tendency is to clam up in prayer? We want to close off our hearts and retreat into our shells and wall up the pain. When we've had really terrible things happen to us, prayer becomes a very painful thing because we can't pray without being honest and we can't pray without facing the truth. And after a great tragedy, we very often don't want to face the truth, right? Because it's too awful and that means we can't or won't talk honestly with God. I've definitely experienced that feeling. So, if we're in that state and we shout at him, that's not really prayer. We're not talking to our Father, we're just yelling at him. The description of verse 19, I think, is different because it describes the prayer of faith as pouring out your heart like water before the Lord. And that surely means breaking the dam, opening up our walled-off hearts and splashing God all over with our messy grief, (laughs) Um, but in a way that takes it to him rather than throwing it at him. Verse 2, verse 20, shows Jeremiah modeling the kind of prayer that isn't afraid to wrestle honestly with God. And it does it from within a relationship with him, not outside of it. He says, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary? of the Lord. These things are outrageous. And the answers to those questions is definitely no. So the prophet is asking God, frankly, can this thing you have done really be right? But he does it while all the while acknowledging by the very act of taking his sorrow to God, that God will always do right, is always trustworthy and remains for his people. So although this is an angry prayer, it is still a prayer of faith. And I think that is what I still believed when I raged at God after the first three months of Benjamin's life. I was angry because I knew that God was good, that he was for me, and that I expected him to do better. But my angry prayer was still a real prayer. It was pouring out my heart like water. And the Lord listened to my heart and he came to my rescue. And I've come to believe through walking these years with the Lord 
that in the economy of God, all of our suffering has the goal of avoiding something worse. Uh, because I know it works this way in my own life. If I go for a three-mile run, it feels like suffering at the time, but I embrace that pain in order to avoid the much worse suffering of living in an unfit and unhealthy body. If I spank my child, I do inflict suffering, and I also suffer myself at having to do that to a person I love. But I embrace both kinds of suffering in order to avoid the much worse problem of raising a self-worshipping, unruly, and incorrigible child. And if I have cancer, I know that the treatment's going to be awful, but I might choose to be treated anyway because having cancer is worse. So as we look at the terrible suffering of Israel after the Babylonian siege, all the horrible things that happened that no one should ever have to experience, we also recognize that even this, even this happened in order to prevent something worse. This problem of sin and self-worship and idolatry that they and we share on the inside is still even more devastating than anything they experience on the outside. And we also see that the something worse had to be suffered by Jesus alone on the cross. None of us will ever suffer on our own account as much as Jesus has suffered on our behalf. His death is what makes even the present pain a mercy. So Lamentations 2, you notice in the language, talks repeatedly about the daughter of Zion. This is the title for Israel that it uses 11 times in this chapter, the daughter of Zion. And as we think about the daughter of Zion, let's also remember the son. The devastation that Lamentations describes, Jesus went through it too. The agony, the blood, the tears, the loss, the forsakenness, the scorn, and the gloating. The anger of his father poured out on his own head with all the concentrated force of a Death Star cannon. But while the daughter suffered for her own idolatry, the son was innocent, and he suffered for ours. So when our trials leave us angry with God, we learn from Lamentations that God knows anger. He has been angry too, but now he has poured his anger out on his own son. He longs to heal us, so he calls us now to list out for him our losses so that we can return to him in prayer. Amen.